0: Hi, this is Stephanie from the Brooklyn office. Just a quick word of warning that we'll be discussing substance abuse, self-harm, and suicide on this episode. If you live in the United States and you're having thoughts of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at
1: 1-800-273-8255. Hey, welcome to Music Made Me, the TuneCore podcast. I'm Nathan Barley-Phillips and I'm going to be your host on today's episode, which is broadcasting from TuneCore's UK office in London. Today we're aiming to have a wide-ranging discussion around well-being and mental health in the music industry. Uh, Working in music is more often than not a 24-7 lifestyle choice rather than your average 9-5 to job. So whether you're trying to make a living as an artist or running an independent label or producing tracks in the studio or managing other artists, it's all too easy to push yourself to the limit and risk burnout. Today we're privileged to be talking to Sam Parker, who is co-founder of Music Support, which is a UK-registered charity that provides confidential advice and support to anyone working within the music industry. And in today's podcast, we'll be discussing the best ways to achieve balance and prioritise wellness, manage time effectively, and hopefully avoid the possible health pitfalls of a life in music. Sam, welcome. Hi. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. good. Good to be here, thanks for asking me. No, you're welcome, you're welcome. So first off, I'd love for you to to tell our listeners a little bit about your history and your background in the music industry uh, and how you came to be involved in the setting up of music support and why you felt it was so important.
0: Hmm. Okay, so um, I've been working in the UK music industry uh, since 1990 in the days when girls got jobs as receptionists in (laughs) record companies and boys got jobs in the post room. Um, That was before computers and stuff. So, yeah, so from there I got promoted, uh, it was at Zomba Records actually, um, in Wilson Green and he had two labels they had Jive and Silvertone so Stone Roses were on Silvertone um, and a lot of rap uh, and hip hop artists were signed to Jive, mostly in the States so it was a really exciting time Um, it probably wasn't too long at that role when I was at an office party and got handed a plate of drugs. OK. And um, that was a bit of a shocker. Yeah, but. Um, but in the 90s, that was a pretty normal thing to be happening yeah and so that was uh my first my mum's not going to be happy if she hears that that's that's kind of my first um, introduction to um what working in the music industry yeah. was yeah. like so,
1: well you know and it's it was reality I exactly guess, so, yeah.
0: that's that's kind of what was going on so I was uh there for a few years and then I uh, left and worked for um a tour promoter Left there, worked for a booking agent, Prodigy and E17. I mean, that goes to show how long ago, doesn't it? And then after that, I was uh, temping around most of the major labels, actually, um, in various different departments, ended up in marketing, almost got a product manager's job. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the very same day, a friend of mine phoned from Island Records and said, a friend of hers was a manager, and was he just signed a band? He was looking for an assistant, so I dropped everything and went to do that. That was about when I was okay.
1: twenty-five. So that was a move from label into management. At yeah, that, that time. was a
0: very that was a very calculated move. Right. Um, I realised that I wasn't cut out for major label life, and okay. actually I was more politically aligned, if you like, to the the you know the 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 great and the good fight on behalf of the artist. Sure. So that's when I um, moved over to the other side. Um, So I did artist management for, oh, goodness, probably about 10 years, both on my own and within organisations. Raised a light with the biggest band that I worked for. um, And I managed um, Andy Burrows, who was the drummer and the songwriter out of that band, uh, got a deal with Mercury Records for his album. Okay, which coincided to my late 30s when I had my first child. Right. Um, So motherhood came and I realised that it was actually very difficult to look after well let's say my management role was quite mumsy right and most of the bands that I worked with were young men
1: so quite demanding yeah Yeah. so
0: you know there was a lot of looking after there's a lot of pastoral care which kind of happened and landed on my lap yeah um and also you know to be fair I was drawn to that as well I'm, I'm I'm quite good at that and uh You know, the late-night conversations about splitting up with girlfriends and I don't know where my passport is and I've got to go to America tomorrow and, (laughs) you know, um, uh, everything's... and you know what the albums bombed and and so on and so forth, so um, I did a short stint as a makeup artist. I knew a lot of people in the industry um, and so I, I wanted to do something where I could earn some money, but I didn't have that massive emotional commitment. Okay. So I worked with a pop act for about thirteen months. Flew all over the world with him. He had a number one album in the UK, did a lot of touring in North America. Mm-hmm. And that was when I really found out what it's like to be have a hardcore promotion schedule. OK. And then... Going right alongside that, I suppose, um, my best friend when I was 27 developed a crack and coke, um, heroin addiction. OK. So it was, it was tough and I needed help with that. Mm-hmm. My own personal resources had run out, I'd got to the end. So I was one of those people that made the phone call to the National Drugs Helpline okay. and said, you need to help me because yeah. I, I don't know what to do. Yeah. So all through my time in artist management, I was, you know, looking at my own stuff and how I ended up recreating a a family situation at home, which was eldest daughter with a family with historic generational issues that needed, in my view... Managing, yeah, sure. So, surprise so surprise, of, I end up of, in
1: artist management, right? Okay, so kind of before you really even were aware of it, you'd you'd actually kind of had first hand experience of kind of managing some of these issues before you, you know, yeah. you know you'd actually yeah. identified that
0: for sure. Yeah, there's 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 an absolute link between our family of origin stuff and what we do for a living. Yeah, in my mind, there's no doubt. Yeah, you know, and it's always an attempt at trying to solve or resolve some of those issues. So, you know, like most people that are involved in artist management, it's, you know, it is, it can be quite chaotic. Yeah, um, absolutely. And um, requires a lot of emotional intelligence and a a good ability to organise quite chaotic schedules and quite chaotic people and personalities. Yeah, I'm sure. So I decided that, that I needed to make a change in my 40s, early 40s and embarked on a training for interfaith ministry okay. which is a bit left field
1: yeah I yeah. realize <laughs> well no that's, that's actually one of the interesting things that kind of drew me to to you and and that that particular point as well you know in terms of so so you're now you're, you're an actual ordained interfaith minister yes. um, which I find amazing um uh, and, and both kind of I have absolutely no knowledge of that world so I mean how did how did What does that entail? How did that come about? And how does that relate to, you know, some of the work you've been doing with Um, with music support? mm,
0: I don't really know how that came about either, to be honest. Um, I guess it was kind of um, quite intuitive. Yeah. Um, I I wanted to do... I wanted to learn about something that I didn't know much about, but through my own recovery from mental health stuff, and I I absolutely needed to find a way of living that transcended this pain I was in. Mm -hmm. I've got a general anxiety disorder. And I found myself in the music industry, which is quite chaotic, and it's quite anxiety-producing anyway, let alone having an undiagnosed condition. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so my attempts to deal with all of that stuff led me to Live a bit more of a spiritual life, I guess. Okay, right. So it was, a, it, was a, it was an exploration into more of that arena that I was interested in. Yeah. And suddenly out I popped as an ordained interfaith minister. Wow, well,
1: okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I loved it. It was amazing. Great. So, I mean, what what does that kind of mean for your kind of day-to-day in terms of how, you know, how that comes into play? Is it is it is it just a uh, you know something that's that's there that gives you some kind of you know support as you, yourself as an individual in terms of the knowledge base it gives you and and that kind of thing? Or yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah. I think for me, um, so a lot of people would um, become celebrants, mm-hmm. so they would they you know baby namings, weddings, yeah. marriages, rites of passage yeah. for young men, young women, and funerals. Mm-hmm. So so passing through important stages of life. Yeah. Um, is marked by a ritual in most societies. Um, And that's because it's important, because it's a transition from one stage of life to another. And most organised religions require you to be a member of their congregation, if you like, in order to benefit from that holding. Mm -hmm. And uh, One Spirit Interfaith Foundation is an organisation that trains people to minister to People who want that spiritual that participation by somebody who is yeah,
1: it's a recognition and an acknowledgement and a, you know of, of a particular moment in your in yeah. your life or someone else's yeah, but life or... they might not
0: necessarily subscribe to a particular religion absolutely or they yeah. might be of mixed faith. Mm-hmm. So therefore, that's why uh, One Spirit Interfa- Interfaith Foundation was set up yep. in New York about thirty years ago.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So today, I have presided over one funeral. Mm-hmm. And I hope to do some more of those, actually. End of life really interests me. The transition from being alive into not. And what is that all about? Them? Yeah, yeah, What yeah. is that all about, you yeah. know? So, so I find that um, I've always been quite good at being able to sit with uncomfortable topics. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm always, I've always been quite drawn to the darker side of life.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I find it quite compelling So I feel almost duty-bound, really, as a lot of people don't, in order to offer my services in that area. But mainly I don't. Mainly, for me, being an interfaith minister is about how I am in everyday life to everybody rather than what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, Having said that, being involved with music support is very much about becoming, or rather, facilitating community.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of... The industry that we work in, and specifically because it's, um, you know, it's, it's an inter- industry that uh, that is working with an art form. That ultimately there are communities and subcommunities based within that, and each each of those communities has its own kind of support network and and everything else. So yeah, so I can absolutely see why the two are, you know, for you specifically are related. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, great. Well, thanks so much for giving us a, a bit more of a, an insight as to kind of you know where you where you are now, where you came from, and, and everything else. So yeah, I wanted to dig into. Um, so let's start with some stats because <laughs> stats are always great. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to, to to run this past you, which was um, just some stats on a, on a recent survey that was conducted actually on. Uh, around two and a half thousand people working in music, so that's artists as well as the wider industry. Um, and that uh, survey actually found that 70% of the people polled had suffered, they registered that they suffered panic attacks. Um, and actually over 60% had suffered some kind of form of depression, um, which actually is, according to the report, three times the average of uh, of any other industry, um, which is obviously... You know, looking at those statistics on that report are quite shocking. It feels like awareness has probably improved slightly in recent times. um, But do you think our industry is particularly susceptible to encouraging working conditions that are conducive to poor well-being and mental health? Uh, For instance, working around the clock and surrendering leisure time, etc.
0: Yes. I okay, is. short answer. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next question. yeah, no. um, yeah I, th- I think I think there are two factors. I think first of all what what a uh, to touch upon why I ended up in artist management in the first place. Mm. You know, so so for me, there was an interest in the, the, the art form, which is why I wanted to work in the music industry in the first place. That means that I connect with that as a human being more, more than any other art form. So the people that work in the music industry, I guess, are similar. I mean, most of us are, have a... Since we were kids, have probably had an interest in that particular art form. And I think there's something about when you do something for a living that you love, it's very difficult to know when you stop or to stop. Yeah. And everything can seem, particularly when you're young, extremely exciting, extremely... um, It doesn't feel like work.
1: Absolutely, It can
0: feel... You know, you're at a gig and you're out with the artist or, you know, you're booking shows or you're recording in a studio and you are at, at your, you know, in your bliss if you like, yeah. not all the time, but no, in, enough times, Um and, and especially, so, where, especially where
1: especially like you say, when when you're first starting out, yeah, um, you know that it can be really difficult. Yeah, it's very seductive. Absolutely, yeah.
0: And it's boys and it's girls and it's late and it's booze and it's drugs mm-hmm. quite often. Yeah, and you know it's 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 a very enticing cocktail and it's feelings, yeah. you know, and you're connecting. Absolutely. And and if you're working with a band and they've got a good gig. Or a DJ, and it's all going off, you know, suddenly it all feels worthwhile because yeah. look what you've contributed to. Mm-hmm. So then to, you know, we haven't even got to the artist yet. This is just the people that were, you know, so, so it, can be, it, it can be deeply fulfilling. So it gets to 12 midnight or one or two or three, four, five. Yeah, <laughs> six, yeah. And yeah. you can still be there. Easy to do. Yeah. Uh, and then you have to get up the next morning and go to work which kind of is okay when you're in your 20s. Yeah. stops being so fun once you get past 30. Yeah. As for the artists, I think of all the artists I've worked with, I have seen that there is a desire for connection mm-hmm. that they have managed to foster through listening to music in their bedrooms and then some go on to pick up and... A guitar, or, or or you know, somehow a passion, a connection is created between their favourite music and themselves, and it could quite possibly, not necessarily, but quite often is the case that that is the only yeah. real connection that's going on. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's quite possible and probable that most creatives, most artists and performers have probably a higher level of vulnerability. And sensitivity yeah. than your normal average Joe on the street. Therefore, you mix that up with what we've already discussed in terms of the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, add the pressure of creation for commercial gain, yeah. status, yeah. fame, um, and unless you know, unless you've got your ducks in a line in terms of well-being toolkit. <laughs> yeah you're probably going to end up in some kind of trouble to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost can't see any way that you're not.
1: Yeah, do you, is that, you, you think that the, the, the way that the industry is kind of shaped up, is it kind of just kind of inevitably leads to that for some people?
0: I think in any society where you gauge, am I good enough mm-hmm. by record sales or airplay yeah. or tickets sold, if it's a hierarchical society mm-hmm. where success is being at the top rather than making an album for album's sake and and people do do that but that's not really the society we live in. No, it's,
1: you, you're judged on your output. And it's, yeah, you're right. And it's very difficult, I think, for artists when they're, you know, they've reached a certain level of success, or they've reached a, not even success, but a kind of sustainability for for what they're doing. Yeah. Um. To for, to, to for it to remain a for arts' sake, mm. you know, endeavor. Mm. Um. You know that that can be really difficult. We're having a conversation earlier about, you know, just kind of talking about artists that. You can really tell the artists that have written a have written a record for it to be successful, mm. as opposed you know it's written a record because they've got something to say Mm. so yeah so it can it can be really difficult I think you know going back to what you were saying um, specifically about those working in the industry that aren't maybe aren't necessarily uh, the artists um, I was just wondering uh, as an industry should we be changing and challenging the standards of what's expected so you know do we need to end um, the expectation that you have to work and be available all the time or does that just come with the territory and there's a sort of inevitability that we have to accept that to a, to a degree or it's quite a fine balance. I just wonder what your thoughts were on it, because it's It's a, quite a unique industry in that way. You know, there are some, you know, industries where, you know, people are working late and people work late in, in lots of different, you know, Walks of life and industries, but because of how the art form is expressed, and like you were saying earlier, in terms of you know it, it shows it's midnight, it's weekends, it's you know this that and the other, you know should should we be more aware of that from its kind of the you know, the social implications, and you know should we be challenging the expectation that we should be available at all times for mm. those you know for those things? Mm, yes, yeah,
0: absolutely. I think you know when I was uh, managing the schedule. For a band, I very much felt like the gatekeeper of their well being, really. You know, speaking to international international department of a major label, speaking to the product manager, and, and actually we didn't have social media then. No. So that was pre-social media. And even then, oh, I know they're just arriving in Austria at 2, and 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 would it be? And, and I know they've got to go down to Soundcheck at 3.30, but I was just wondering if we got journalists to get on the bus with them as they were transferring from the, you know... And it's always trying to wedge stuff in, mm-hmm. you know, promo and interviews and phoners and... Um, meet and greets and trying to maximise the availability of the artist when they're in a particular territory, for example. There was not much consideration from anybody, really. And no. when I look back, I did my best. But even so, the pressure to be able to deliver record sales was not just from from management either, it was from the artist as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so so they they were definitely... Um, So we all colluded, I think, with one another. Yeah. But now, I think, it's become obvious... Really obvious to yeah. everybody outside our industry that I think I think it's just risen in the collective consciousness yeah. around the world, Western world, with the, with all of us that actually it's not okay mm-hmm. for that. Just to, it's almost like capitalism has <laughs> come to yeah, its no, peak. I peak.
1: Th- yeah, absolutely. I, I think that um, push, push,
0: push, push, push for productivity yeah. across the
1: board yeah. is
0: now not.
1: Okay. No, and I think that, you know, they've unfortunately, you know, there have been some quite high-profile casualties... Of course. ..you know, of that, and I think that, you know, not only, you know, the people that are kind of working behind the scenes, but also, you know, kind of frontline artists, which, of course, you know, they're the ones that pick the stories up that then get that message home, you know, a little bit more about the increased kind of, you know, pressure that was, you know, put on them to deliver... Um, you know, and everything else. I mean, do you think that there's still a a bit of a taboo around mental health in the industry? Um, Attitudes seem to be changing slowly. Um, But do you think that uh, artists and others working in the the industry are still afraid to speak up for fear that it will jeopardise their careers? Um, You know, for instance, do others in the industry see someone that's that's spoken up as, you know, about their issues as damaged goods? Have you seen examples of something like that kind of firsthand?
0: I think... There is a pressure from artists to deliver what everybody expects them to deliver and what they've been dreaming about since they were eight mm. to deliver is that what well, I think the I think the real
1: I just wonder are people kind of scared? You know, our artists kind of—if they are dealing with issues—are they—are they scared to mention it, either to you know, in a kind of public forum, um, or not? Not only that, but just you know, to their manager or you know, to their to their label manager. I think the manager always knows what's going but, but on. Yeah, I think you're right. I think
0: the manager always knows what's going on. And if you've got a good A person, they'll probably have a clue as well. Yeah, of course. But but do, really do they
1: talk about it in a kind of wider arena in terms of kind of trying to get that person help, or do they kind of try and hide it away for fear that it's actually going to jeopardize them as a product?
0: I think what would be, I think the latter. Mm. I think I think that the the competition is fierce. And the fear is, is that if I can't do it, somebody else is making the album and they're in a similar genre and they're going to get there first. Yeah. So this this kind of idea of, um, and to a certain degree, it's true, I guess. You know, there's only so much space in the market mm-hmm. for... You know, your top rock band, your top DJ, you know, whatever genre it is. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a lot of competition. Um, and there's only so many pounds available in a market to spend. So in, in those terms, if that's how you want to judge your success, it's, it's going to be extremely pressurising to, to, to not think that it's saying, I've got to take six months out is not going to go down like a lead balloon. Mm. You know, you've got, a, you've got a, a release schedule and everybody needs to stick to it, come hell or high water. Mm. I think what would be uh, amazing, and I think is yet to happen, is if the artist would, or the manager and the artist, would feel confident enough to have the conversation with A&R. Okay. And then for A&R, more importantly... To be able to conversation with the marketing director mm-hmm. and say, actually, do you know what? This album isn't gonna be out October three months, you know, the ideal album release time. Yeah. It's not gonna be out until next October. So just
1: making that call on behalf of that yeah. person, then then the the well being
0: for sure, and then the label's gonna to have to look at their finances, aren't they? Yeah. And their their you know, and, and then work out what that means not yeah. to have that income. But but as long as it's driven by the label's projection, mm-hmm. finance projections. Then it's going to be very difficult for people to do that. Yeah. Unless you're a big artist and you can say this is happening. Yeah. And if it isn't, uh, and and that's that, and too bad. But there are very few artists that will be able to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I was thinking about is whether you whether you think people find it difficult to talk about their illness. Sometimes, if they if they are suffering because it's it's not a visible thing. So you know, for instance, if I break my leg, I can go to the hospital and get it fixed, and it's like a visible kind of a problem or a visible ailment that I had. Um, but, yeah, if, you know, if if, if something inside is broken, yeah. it's less obvious, yeah. um, you know, or if it's not, not, you know, you're not operating as you should be, um, it can be probably a little bit more difficult to ask for and receive the help that mm. you need. Mm. Yeah, I just, I mean, I, I guess I just kind of... Wonder whether that plays into people kind of, you know, feeling like they can't bring it up because it's, you know, it's just not a visible, tangible thing. Mm. Mm. Um, do you th- Has that been the case in your experience? Or? Well,
0: certainly with the Music Support Helpline, people only call when they're in crisis. Right. You know, they don't call preemptively. No. They call when the what's-its hit the fan. Mm. Um, and so that probably tells us something yeah. about what's going on. The other thing is, is that I think it can be really, really difficult to even understand what's going on yourself, let alone be able to articulate that to somebody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't get diagnosed with anxiety disorder until I was, early 30s? Yeah. So I spent the whole of my 20s and the first couple of years of my 30s thinking that, I don't know what I thought, I just used to smoke a lot of weed. Okay. Um to bring myself down but i didn't realize i was self medicating right um so it wasn't really until i saw the right person that was able to tell me that i've got i spend so much of my time on on fight or flight in an anxious state with cortisol and adrenaline pumping out mm-hmm. that i crash and then i have and then i feel depressed yeah but the first time i mentioned that in at work first thing somebody said to me was no you're not you're not one of those people that get depressed and that's just not you mm. you know so I think
1: yeah I, I had similar comments okay. to that as well and Yeah, was, but mean, you're well,
0: so bubbly and you're, yeah I mean you know.
1: you know what was what was interesting i think from you know from from my point of view is is you're right and it, and and on my own you know from my own personal experience, it wasn't until actually after I'd kind of dealt with it i'd you know sought help and had kind of come through the other side that I actually kind of felt confident to talk about it or to mention it to to anybody, you know those that kind of were in my immediate vicinity knew about it mm. but it wasn't until I kind of processed it dealt with it mm. and then kind of thought to myself afterwards actually yeah that's yeah you know I did I did have quite severe depression at that you know at that time mm. um but during that time mm. I didn't know I did really no um and you know and even when I kind of you know was diagnosed and was that I, I couldn't really feel, I didn't really feel like I could kind of talk about it in any way that I knew how to because I didn't know how to quantify it. I, was, I had no idea, you know, kind of what it was. So, so yeah, so it's kind of... I think it just makes it that little bit more difficult for, mm. you know, for people to kind of to come forward. Because as you say, quite often they don't know that that's what it is or mm. that that's what they're dealing with. And once they... Even when they do know, mm. they're not sure how they should deal with it. Um, you know, and what the best steps are. Mm. So... Yeah, it can be quite difficult.
0: Well, it is because you're not talking about. If you've got a broken leg, you can, you know, you phone up work and you say, "I've got a broken leg," and everyone kind of knows that you're going to be in a cast for X amount of time. People know enough about it to be able to contextualise it. If for a lot of people, because and also the language, you know, society needs to look at. Oh, I feel a bit depressed today you know, we, we, we're we very flippant about these kind yeah, of terms. Yeah, kind of... Is or kind of I'm a, a bit OCD, the, is, you yeah, know, yeah, I'm like, a bit this, I'm a bit that. That's
1: really funny. I had that OCD conversation earlier with with somebody here um, and it wasn't until actually, a, a, again, a, a friend of mine years back actually had full-blown OCD and that's when I realised, oh, that's OCD, yeah. you know, and, and I've never said that again since, you yes. know, so you kind of realise that actually, like you say, you've kind of got these off-the-cuff, off, off the cuff, yeah. you know, remarks where, you know, I'm... Well, bit depressed today or whatever and actually it's not quite the same and it, although it's obviously it's difficult to kind of to judge and, and who are you to kind of judge, but um yeah, that can be a really difficult call. Yeah. yeah so, yeah,
0: if I if I, if I I could say I've got depression and it looked like an apple and that was an understood thing, then you would know, oh, you have an apple in your head and you yeah. go, oh, that's what's going on with Sam. OK, well, maybe she might need to, I don't know, come in a bit later or maybe she might have some time off or mm. perhaps we'll do a two day back to work or perhaps we'll ease off of the recording schedule or we'll try to help. Um, that person to work through that difficult time. Mm. But, you know, it, 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 it's an apple to me, it's an apple pie to you. I'm not even going to get on with this analogy. <laughs> but, but you know, it looks like something different Absolutely. to everybody. So yeah. no one's got a clue. And that's, that's a barrier in the first place.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, so focusing on artists specifically... Um, Going back to something you touched on earlier, I wanted to kind of talk about that, that pressure of uh, perception and, and making it and and being successful, um, looking at kind of uh, artists in their, their early stages, especially, um, they can feel like they're putting a lot in but not getting much back. Um, it can be really hard to kind of manage your own expectations at the best of times, I think um but when you add to that the natural pressures and uh environment that the music inevitably uh, inevitably brings um usually for those people it's kind of you know working a regular job uh and 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 you know ultimately. Trying to then you know be productive and creative and and have irregular kind of hours in the in the practice studio, um, you know, increased time away from from family and loved ones when they're you know when touring and even when they're touring to have that kind of have to kind of cohabit with with other people for long periods of time, um, it's kind of quite an unhealthy can be quite an unhealthy mix if you kind of you know try and juggle all those things at once, and I think the other thing is, is that all of that time and effort is usually at that stage for for very little return. It's mm. sort of, you know, it's either low income or no income. Obviously, recognition and affirmation is kind of subjective um, and looks different for everybody, like we've just said. Um, but I just wondered if you've got any kind of advice for artists that, that might be juggling those kind of pressures, um, just maybe some help in, in ways they, they can kind of manage things successfully uh, in those kind of early stages. Mm.
0: Well, it's interesting because I'm married to a songwriter mm. and he has to write songs and play the guitar, like he has to breathe and eat. So it's, it can be quite difficult to fit that into a working day. I think that there absolutely has to be a few key things that you need to do. You do need to get enough sleep. Yeah. You do need to be turning up for your relationships. Yeah. I think there needs to be definitely a break from a creative period and probably come in, put, put, you know, to have a um, a period of time where you say, OK, that's enough for today.
1: Yeah, so do you think it's actually quite productive to, to try and give yourself some kind of almost like a life schedule as well as a kind of creative schedule, but mm. just to sort of say, you know, look, if, if these are the things that you kind of value in your yeah. life, i.e. relationships yeah. with, with loved ones or with kids or, yeah. you know, your, your partner or, or whatever it happens yeah. to be, bearing in mind that you've got to kind of try and work a day job as well as, you know, be creative and, yeah. and, and, and go on tour or, you know, even doing weekenders, you know, weekend shows and that yeah. kind of thing, would, it's, would you think it's kind of beneficial to try and have some kind of, Schedule some kind of time? You well, know, first man- of all, it's unsustainable. Yeah. Yeah. it's unsustainable.
0: It's yeah. unsustainable. So you can do it for a period of time, then you have to take a break. And, uh, you know, it's almost worth writing down what are the top five things that are important to you in your life. Okay. Um, and then making sure that you apportion some time. I mean, that could be over a period of a year. Yeah. That could be over a period of the week, the working week. That could be during the course of a day, whatever time period that is you know, it would be good to make sure that each of those, you know, you've you've spent some time in each of those areas. Mm-hmm. But I do also understand the overwhelming, you know, need to create. I mean, it's funny because my husband, for example, is not a late-night songwriter. Okay. You know, he goes into a studio at nine and, and finishes at five and then comes home, you know. So you can yeah. actually make it into... Um, to have normal hours, although I appreciate when people at the beginning... Having said that, when you're young and you're at the beginning, you don't have a whinging wife like me phoning up saying, when are you home? What's for two? <laughs> um, or a child that needs to be taken to football. Yeah. So you probably arguably have got more hours. Yeah. But you've got to watch, you've got to have balance and you've got to watch having to spend too much time underground, mm-hmm. too much time on your own, too much time without natural light. I mean, all those boring things that doctors tell you.
1: Right, but they're... Uh, but they're... Valid.
0: Well, you can only you can only be in a state of creativity for a certain period of time. It, just sitting in a studio uh, trying to be creative is not actually productive. Yeah. So you've got to look at when you're productive. It might be early in the morning, it might be late at night. and But yeah. then work that in. So
1: doing some kind of self-analysis about actually... I mean, I've, I've seen this in kind yeah. of, you know, in, in kind of work, general workplace reports and, and how, the, you know, employment law is, is kind of, you know, factored in at the moment because people have create, you know are naturally creative at different times of the day so, yeah and so you know there's talk about kind of bringing in legislation to allow for that and you know and that kind of thing so it's yeah you know, it, is, it is fascinating because you know f- for me personally I was always really creative really late at night Mm. And it would be that kind of time when actually everyone was in bed, mm. and then I would get the headphones on, get the you know my home studio going, and I yeah. would be there till like three and the four in the morning. Yeah. Just you know because that's once I had that idea, that was it. I was off and I couldn't I couldn't finish. Yeah. But then I had to go to work again at eight o'clock. Yeah. So you, then you're like, okay. Yeah. And Like you say, it was wasn't sustainable. No. At all.
0: No. And the thing is, to be to have, I think. In order to be have the greatest chance of success, whatever that means to you is for it to be, it to be a long term sustainable effort mm. because at the end of the day you need to have a body of work you know and and the quality of that is often i think tied in with the uh, of how connected and present you are in that moment, so you actually might be only very very productive for two or three hours yeah um but if you spend six hours in the studio, you know, making tea and yeah. messing about, it's probably do a, a time diary is actually quite good. Mm-hmm. You know, just to figure out how actually to, to to write it down and then have a look at when you were most creative because when you think you are, how much time you're spending some on something and what time you actually are spending on can be quite shocking. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, that's great. I, I, so one of the other things that I know that you've been uh, doing over the last couple of years with your work with music support, which I'm fascinated to to kind of find a little bit more info about, is um, you coordinated a series of uh, safe spaces um, mm. and safe tents actually um, at uh, shows and various festivals. So I think you did some stuff at uh, Glastonbury, um, did you? And Breading Festival maybe and and that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I, I just be Interesting for me to know, kind of how you, I guess, identified that there was a need for something like that, um, and and then you know, kind of on the day, what does that look like, mm. um, and and what conversations happen with it, you know, within there, and and what um, ultimately what what was the what is the purpose of those kind of safe spaces at, at events and, and shows, and and are they effective and successful?
0: Well, the reason for having them in the first place was that backstage at a festival. Um, and we did 12 last year, and we did 12 this year, so it was our second year of doing them this year. Obviously, we didn't do Glastonbury this year, but we did Reading and Leeds, Wireless, Isle of Wight, Download, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And the idea behind them was having somewhere to go backstage for the artists and crew, anybody who was working on the festival site, really, that wasn't full of madness, okay. festival madness. Yeah. So somewhere to go and sit and have a coffee rather than going to the beer tent, or the you know press lounge, or the tour bus, or just sat on the grass. For there to be people there who were, who, and the people that are there are volunteers from the industry, um, who give up their time freely. Um, have also been on a couple of weekends of training okay. to be able to um, pick up some skills about how to be able to listen to people. They might be fed up. They might have mental health issues that they might not want to share with their band members or it might be the crew and they don't want to... It's a confidential safe space, really, to let off a bit of steam. And also we host um, AA meetings there as well. Oh, right, And and NA meetings. Yeah. And for a lot of the uh, international artists, particularly US artists, they really appreciate that. Yeah, um, I think the Grammys is only the only other place that that happens.
1: Right. Okay.
0: So for people that are in recovery, it's nice to be able to go and do something rather than just watch everyone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, did you else. did you find that the the uptake for those kind of spaces was was quite good, or did you find that kind of the the people did come there actually for the majority just to kind of you know. Get some some quiet time, or did you know? Did you sort of have a mix of that and people that genuinely thought actually there's someone here that can help me, and you know that it would be good to talk.
0: So there, what what's happened with the safe tents is similar to what's happened with the helpline. Mm. In other words, really the only people that approach us at the safe tent are people that are in crisis. Right. We kind of thought people would use it as more of a social area, mm. um, but they don't. And I think that probably speaks to something around it being a last resort still, the thought of going and having to speak to somebody who they don't know. Yeah. And I think to a degree we're, we're going to be rethinking those spaces a little bit for next year. The handful of people that have approached us really have been in trouble. Right. And we've been able to deal with that and really have been in crisis. Yeah, So sure. the idea that there, there wouldn't have been anything there would have been quite worrying, actually. Yeah. However, there's definitely a reluctance to hang out in that kind of space,
1: yeah.
0: What what it does work really well with actually is people that are it, that are in recovery right. from alcohol and drug addiction.
1: Okay, so it kind of gives them like a, a space. What for... we've
0: actually found is that they're absolutely chuffed a bits to be able to have somewhere to go. Yeah, that isn't um, the bar. Exactly, there isn't. Yeah, yeah, so. exactly. So it seems to be working for the people that have made that oh, step that's into, um, into into into. They've had a problem with drugs and alcohol yeah it's not seeming to connect as well with people that aren't
1: yeah
0: however what it does work really well as is a promotional tool mm-hmm. because what has definitely happened is that the calls have gone up over yeah. the summer period great. Um, and what was particularly interesting is that one of the callers that I spoke
1: to—obviously not great—that you're getting more calls. but great that people are seeking help. So. Well, <laughs>
0: yes, yeah, so it's just awareness, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, and one of the callers definitely um, was was encouraged to call because of uh, one of the companies that sponsored. So, uh, they were um, involved with in some way, mm-hmm. and that kind of gave them the idea that it was okay to. Well, if they're sponsoring the music sport safe tent, maybe it's all right then for me to call. They didn't want to go in at that moment, yeah. but it had logged in their mind, and then they made the call, yeah. and they were in a dreadful, dreadful situation. Right, okay. and, it, and and we were able to get them help really quickly. And it's very nice to have those conversations yeah. with people when they're on their road to recovery. I mean, it's the beginning. But you know they're they're pointing in the right
1: direction. Yeah, so you've actually managed to you know give them some really good support and help in that in that instance. Yes. Yeah, great. You mentioned uh, the crisis support as well, and I think I read somewhere that you you had some experience with dealing with people that, that needed some support after the uh, the bombing at Manchester Arena for a Ariana Grande concert. Is that? I mean, that, that kind of, you know, that's kind of quite a raw hmm. um, kind of direct crisis support that you're offering there. So that's, that's something that you've kind of ex- had experience of in your day-to-day as well.
0: Yes. We have a crisis team we can mobilise quite quickly, actually. Yeah. Um, but thankfully, it's not been used that often. No. Uh, in fact, not at all this year. Mm. But yes, after the Manchester Arena bombing, we got a call to see if we could go and support the crew. Most okay. of which were from America, yeah, and who were holed up in a hotel in London, right? And they'd had to leave the yeah, just not, scene, not knowing what to do or no what... toothbrush, no no underpants, no bag, no suitcase, no nothing, mm. and been evacuated, and they couldn't get back because it was a crime scene, so they were stuck. No passports. Obviously, their family were extremely worried about them, yeah, of and course. they'd just seen, heard, and experienced something unimaginable. Mm. And so for some some of those crew members, uh, well, what we were able to do was to go down to the hotel with some trauma experts and administer a bit of sort of first aid, really, as it were, yeah. for trauma. And it was really good to be able to help. It, it was limited, the amount of help, because as you can imagine, that sort of trauma experience is going to take a long time to recover from. Yeah. But what we noticed was that any kind of trauma that had happened to the crew before, stage collapse or such like, it re-triggered that as well. So a lot of them have been extremely vulnerable and overwhelmed. Yeah. And I guess what's good about music support is that you're you're always going to be speaking to somebody who knows about the industry. Mm -hmm. So you're not just speaking to the NHS or somebody who's not aware of what your lifestyle is or about what job you do you know, if someone says they're a a lighting designer or, you know, the production or the wardrobe, we, we know what they do and, yeah, and how course. that is might be for them. Yeah. So that's what's really good about the sort of services we offer, I guess.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's great. It's great to hear. So, yeah, I just, I guess I wanted to sort of try and wrap up a little bit now. But, yeah, obviously you guys are offering kind of, you know, great support uh, to artists and, and, and a lot of other people that are working in various parts of the industry, which is great. But yeah, I just I just wanted if we could kind of finish up with looking at a kind of probably just a, a fairly wide kind of question. And that's just what can we be doing from an industry perspective to try and kind of prioritize wellness in our day to day, as well as spotting symptoms early on and helping, you know, friends and colleagues and artists that we work with. Do you think we need to try and become more preventative rather than reactive? Um, and if if so, kind of any tips or advice that you can give on that?
0: I think it would be really, really helpful if people, if all of us had an understanding of what the difference is between I feel, you know, a bit depressed mm. and making quotation marks um, and what actual depression is yeah. and what it feels like. Um, so for all of us to get a bit more clued up about mm. what is within the realm of normal and OK yeah. and it will pass and what is in the realm of, of clinical and you need professional help. So, yeah, so that that would be a good start. Yeah. I think to be aware that we can't just stick our fingers in our ears and or close our eyes to the difficulties that artists have in being able to promote their work and being able to create their work. And I think we really need all to be, everybody involved needs to be more mindful about how that might be for that individual. Yeah. And actually how they might not have a voice. Mm-hmm. So um, also to be able to spot mental health crisis as well and to be able to look out for one another.
1: Yeah, sure. Do you, do you have any kind of immediate advice for anybody that might be listening to this podcast that, that might be suffering with anxiety or depression or suicidal thoughts? Um, you know, or even, you know, somebody that, that knows someone that is. Is there any yeah. kind of any direct advice that, that they can, you know, sort of get today from you yeah. on
0: that? Go, if it's somebody else, go and ask how they are. Yeah, I've noticed a change in your behaviour. Might be a good start, and I'm just wondering, are you okay? Right. So you could open up a conversation that way. I think wrote a few notes here actually about depression, Mm. negative automatic thoughts. You know, so depression isn't about feeling a bit down; it's about a prolonged period of negative automatic thoughts, a sense of being hopeless and helpless, and having very low energy. So they're the kind of key factors. An anxiety, people tend to avoid. They start avoiding social situations or meals out or friends, family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know this quite well. Being in a constant state of fight, flight or freeze. OK. You know, for the normal fight, flight, freeze reaction, it goes up, peak experience, you know, oh, my God, something's happened in the street, you know, or oh, my purse has been nicked or whatever. But then eventually you'll come back down again to a sort of normal state. Mm. And with Anxiety, you get kicked up to the peak level where the cortisol and adrenaline is just being pumped into your system, but you don't come down. Yeah. You keep getting re-triggered and re-triggered and re-triggered okay. to the point of exhaustion. Yeah, And suicide, Yes, yeah, suicide is about despair. Suicide mm. is about pain and wanting the pain to stop. And it can be very difficult for somebody who is in a constant state of emotional pain mm. to be able to have, have any perspective over that. So it's very useful for somebody else to be able to engage them in a conversation who, who genuinely cares about them yeah. and ask them how they are. And quite often it's, it's, it's a good idea to say, oh, have you thought about suicide?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Ask the question. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And they, they,
0: they will say yes or no. And then talk about that a bit more. Yeah. I think avoiding it, and I think tiptoeing around the edges—it's um,
1: actually counterproductive.
0: I think so. Yeah. I think if somebody's thinking of suicide, w- you need to know where they're at with it. Mm-hmm. There's some very, very uh, useful information on Mind website. Yeah. Rethink, and the mental health first aid course yeah. is a, is a very is very good actually.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're uh, we're actually hoping to to train for that here. So. Yeah, that'll be... That would be great. Um, so, I mean, for, uh, you know, obviously, you, you know, you guys... Bring music and, support. Yeah, yeah I mean, thing. yeah, I was going to say, so for those that might need it, um, where can people contact either you personally or, or or music support? And, I mean, you know, are you a- available on, on Twitter and, and that kind of stuff? And...
0: I'm available on Twitter. I'm Rev Sam Parker. Okay. I'm available... Interfaith um, Minister. Interfaith Minister. Yeah. Da, da, da. Uh, I'm um, available through the um, music support website. Mm -hmm. so if somebody wants to email me they can email um, sam at musicsupport.org if people need help with any of the depression, anxiety or anything else that they're concerned with about themselves or somebody else Mm -hmm. then they can get in touch and ring the helpline or email us and somebody will get back to them and we'll be able to offer them some options which quite often we'll be able to get funding for, which is a very important thing to say.
1: Okay, great. Sam, thanks so much for being our guest today. You've been a fantastic guest. Thanks ever so much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Music Made Me, the TuneCore podcast. The opinions expressed in this episode are those of the individuals talking and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of TuneCore. Check out tunecore.com
0: to help you distribute your music, register your original songs worldwide, and more. Connect with us on all social channels at TuneCore.
1: Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes.